Chapter 5 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzocchi. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 5. The war-footing arrangements of the distribution office included a system of food control involving local supervision. Hence, provincial centers came suddenly into being, and to one of these, at York, Theodore Savage was dispatched at little more than an hour's notice on the morning after war was declared. He telephoned Phillida, and they met at King's Cross and had ten hurried minutes on the platform. She was still eager and excited, bubbling over with the impulse to action, was hoping to start training for hospital work, had been promised an opening. She would tell him all about it when she wrote. Her excitement took the bitterness out of the parting. Perhaps, in her need to give and serve, she was even proud that the sacrifice of parting was demanded of her. The last he saw of her was a smiling face and a cheery little wave of the hand. He made the journey to York with a carriage full of friendly and talkative folk who in normal days would have been strangers to him and to each other. As it was, they exchanged newspapers and optimistic views and grew suddenly near to each other in their common interest and resentment. That was what war meant in those first stirring days. Friendliness, good comradeship, the desire to give and serve, the thrill of unwanted excitement. Looking back from after years, it seemed to him that mankind, in those days, was finer and more gracious than he had ever known it, than he would ever know it again. The first excitement over, he lived somewhat tediously at York between his office and dingily respectable lodgings, discovering very swiftly that, so far as he, Theodore Savage, was concerned, a state of hostilities meant the reverse of holorums and excursions. For him, it was the strictest of official routine and the multiplication of formalities. His hours of liberty were fewer than in London, his duties more tiresome, his chief less easy to get on with. There was frequent overtime and leave, which meant Phillida was not even a distant possibility. For all his honest desire of service, he was soon frankly bored by his work. Its atmosphere of minute regularity and insistent detail was out of keeping with the tremor and uncertainty of war. And there was something aesthetically wrong about a fussy process of docketing and checking while nations were at death grips and the fate of a world in the balance. His one personal satisfaction was the town, York itself. The walls, the bars, and above all, the minster. He lodged near the minster, could see it from his window, and its enduring dignity was a daily relief alike from the feverish perusal of war news, his landlady's color scheme, and taste in furniture, and the fidgety trifling of the office. In the evening, he read many newspapers and wrote long letters to Phillida, who also, he gathered, had discovered that war might be tedious, we haven't any patience yet, she scribbled him in one of her later letters. But of course, I'm learning all sorts of things that will be useful later on, when we do get them, bandaging and making beds, and then we attend lectures. It's rather dull waiting and bandaging each other for practice, 
but naturally I'm thankful that there aren't enough casualties to go around. Up to now, the regular hospitals have taken all that there are. Temporaries like us don't get even a look in. The news is really splendid, isn't it? There were few casualties in the beginning, because curiously little happened. Western Europe was removed from the actual storm center, and in England, after the first few days of alarmist rumors concerning invasion by air and sea, the war, for a time, settled down into a certain amount of precautionary rationing and a daily excitement in newspaper form, so much so that the timorous well-to-do who had retired from London on the outbreak of hostilities trickled back in increasing numbers. Hostilities in the beginning were local and comparatively ineffective. One of the results of the limitation of troops and armaments enforced by the Constitution of the League was to give to the opening moves of the contest a character unprepared and amateurish. The aim, on either side, was to obtain time for effective preparation, to organize forces and resources, to train fighters and mobilize chemists, to convert factories, manufacture explosive and gas, and institute a system of cooperation between the strategy of far-flung allies. Hence, in the beginning, the conflict was partial and, as regards its strategy, hesitating. There were spasms of bloody incident which were deadly enough in themselves, but neither side cared to engage itself seriously before it had attained its full strength. First blood was shed in a fashion that was frankly medieval. The heady little democracy whose failure to establish a claim in the court of arbitration had been the immediate cause of the conflict flung itself with all its half-civilized resources upon its neighbor and enemy, the victorious party to the suit. Between the two little communities was a treasured feud which had burst out periodically in defiance of courts and councils, and, control once removed, the border tribesmen gathered for the fray with all the enthusiasm of their rude forefathers, and raided each other's territory in bands armed with knives and revolvers, their doings made spirited reading in the press, and in the early days of the war, before the generality of newspaper readers had even begun to realize that battles were no longer won by the shock of troops and that the root principle of modern warfare was the use of the enemy's civilian population as an auxiliary destructive force. Certain states and races grasped the principle sooner than others being marked out for early enlightenment by the accident of geographical position. In those not immediately affected, such as Britain, censorship on either side ruled out as impossible for publication the extent of the damage inflicted on allies and the fact that it was not only in enemy countries that large masses of population, hunted out of cities by chemical warfare and the terror from above, had become nomadic and predatory. That, as the struggle grew fiercer, became inevitably the declared aim of the strategist, the exhaustion of the enemy by burdening him with a starving and nomadic population. War, once a matter of armies in the field, had resolved itself into an open and thoroughgoing effort to ruin enemy industry by setting his people on the run, to destroy enemy agriculture not only by incendiary devices, the so-called poison fire, but by the secondary and even more potent agency of starving millions driven out to forage as they could. 
the process in the stilted phrase of the communique was described as displacement of population. And displacement of population, not victory in the field, became the real military objective. To the soldier, at least, it was evident very early in the struggle that the perfection of scientific destruction had entailed of necessity the indirect system of strategy associated with industrial warfare, displacement of population being no more than a natural development of the striker's method of attacking a government by starving the non-combatant community. The aim of the scientific soldier, like that of the soldier of the past, was to cut his enemy's communications, to intercept and hamper his supplies, and the obvious way to attain that end was by ruthless disorganization of industrial centers, by letting loose a famished industrial population to trample and devour his crops. Manufacturing districts on either side were rendered impossible to work in by making them impossible to live in, and from one crowded center after another, there streamed out squalid and panic-stricken herds, devouring the country as they fled. Seeking food, seeking refuge, turning this way or that, pursued by the terror overhead or imagining themselves pursued, and breaking, striving to separate, to make themselves small and invisible. And as air fleets increased in strength and tactics were perfected, as one center of industry after another went down and out, the process of disintegration was rapid. To the tentative and hesitating opening of the war had succeeded a fury of widespread destruction, and statesmen rendered desperate by the sudden crumbling of their own people, the sudden lapse into primitive conditions, could hope for salvation only through a quicker process of displacement on the enemy side. There were reasons, political and military, why the average British civilian during the opening phases of the struggle knew little of warfare beyond certain food restrictions. The news vouchsafed in the communique and the regulation comments thereon, the enemy forces which might have brought home to him the meaning of the term displacement, were occupied at first with other and nearer antagonists. Hence, continental Europe, and not Europe alone, was spotted with ulcers of spreading devastation before displacement was practiced in England. There had been stirrings of uneasiness from time to time, of uneasiness and almost of wonder that the weapon she was using with deadly effect had not been turned against herself. But at the actual moment of invasion, there was something like public confidence in a speedy end to the struggle, and the principal public grievance was the shortage and high price of groceries. Whatever he forgot and confused in after days, and there were stretches of time that remained with him only as a blur, Theodore remembered very clearly every detail and event of the night when disaster began. Young Hewlett's voice as he announced disaster and what he, Theodore, was doing when the boy rapped on the window, not only what happened, but his mood when the interruption came and the causes of it. He had suffered an irritating day at the office, crossed swords with a self-important chief, and been openly snubbed for his pains. As a result, his landlady's evening grumble on the difficulties of wartime housekeeping seemed longer and less bearable than usual, and he was still out of tune with the world in general when he sat down to write to Phillida. He remembered phrases of the letter. 
never posted, wherein he worked off his irritation. I got into trouble today through thinking of you when I was supposed to be occupied with indents. You are responsible, blessed girl, for several most horrible muckers affecting the service of the country. Your empty hospital don't want you, and my empty-headed boss don't want me. Oh, lady mine, if I could only make him happy by sacking myself and catching the next train to London, and so on and so on. It was late, nearing midnight, when he finished his letter, and for want of other occupation, turned back to a half-read evening paper. The communiques were meager, but there was a leading article pointing out the inevitable effect of displacement on the enemy's resources and morale, and he waded through its comfortable optimism. As he laid aside the paper, he realized how sleepy he was, and rose yawning. He was on his way to the door, with intent to turn in, when the rapping on the window halted him. He pulled aside the blind and saw a face against the glass, pressed close with a flattened white nose. Who's that? he asked, pushing up the window. It was Hewlett, one of his juniors at the office, out of breath with running and excitement. I say, Savage, come along out. There's no end going on. Fires, the whole sky's red. They've come over at last, and no mistake, Crenshaw and I have been watching them, and I thought you'd like to have a look. It's worth seeing. We're just along there, on the wall. Hurry up. The boy was dancing with eagerness to get back, and Theodore had to run to keep up with him. He and Crenshaw, Hewlett explained in gasps, had spent the evening in a billiard room. It was on their way back to their diggings that they had noticed sudden lights in the sky, sort of flashes, and gone up on the wall to see better. No, it wasn't only searchlights. You could see them, too. Sudden flashes in the sky, all red. Fires to the south. It was the real thing, no doubt about that, and the only wonder was why they hadn't come before. At the head of the steps, leading up to the wall, were three or four figures with their heads all turned one way, and as Ulit, mounting first, called, Still going on? Another voice called back, Rather! They stood on the broad, flat wall and watched in a chill little wind. The skyline to the south and the southwest was reddened with a glow that flickered and wavered spasmodically. And as Hewlett had said, there were flashes, the bursting of explosive or star shells. Also, there were moments when the reddened skyline throbbed suddenly in places, grew vividly golden, and sent out long, fiery streamers. They guessed at direction and wondered how far off. The wind was blowing sharply from the north, towards the glow, Hence it carried sound away from them, and it was only now and then that they caught more than a mutter and rumble. As the minutes drew out, the news spread through the town, and the watchers on the wall increased in numbers, not only men but women, roused from bed who greeted the flares with shrill, excited oaths and put ceaseless questions to their menfolk. Young Hewlett at Theodore's elbow gave himself up to frank interest in his first sight of war, justifying a cheerfulness that amounted to enthusiasm by explaining at intervals that he guessed our fellows were giving him what for, and by this time they were sorry they'd come. Once, a shawled woman demanded tartly, why didn't they leave off then if they'd had enough? Whereat Hewlett, unable to think of an answer, pretended not to hear and moved away. 
of his own sensations while he watched from the wall, Theodore remembered little, save the bodily sensation of chill. He saw himself standing with his back to the wind, his shoulders hunched, and the collar of his coat turned up. The murmur of hushed voices remained with him, and odd snatches of fragmentary talk. There was the woman who persisted uneasily, but you can't hear him coming with these ere silent engines. Why, they might be right over us now. And the man who answered her gruffly with, you jolly well know if they were, and perpetual conjecture as to distance and direction of the glow. Disputes between those who asserted that over there was Leeds and those who scoffed contemptuously at the idea, arguing that if Leeds were the center of disturbance, the guns would have sounded much nearer. Petty talk, he remembered, and plainly enough, but not how much he feared or foresaw. He must have been anxious, uneasy, or he would not have stood for long hours in the chill of the wind. But his definite impressions were only of scattered, for the most part uneducated talk, of silhouetted figures that shifted and grouped, of turning his eyes from the lurid skyline to the shadowy rock that in daylight was the mass of the cathedral. In the end, sheer craving for warmth drove him in, leaving Hewlett and Crenshaw deaf to his reminder that the office expected them at nine. With the morning came news and more plentifully rumor, also the wind having dropped a persistent thunder from the south. Industrial Yorkshire, it was clear, was being subjected to that process of human displacement, which so far it had looked on as an item in the daily communique. The attack, moreover, was an attack in force, since the invaders did not find it needful to desist with the passing of darkness. Rumor, in the absence of official intelligence, invented an enveloping air fleet which should cut them off from their base, and meanwhile the thunder continued. This much, at least, was shortly official and certain. Nearly all rail, road, and postal communication to the south was cut off. Trains had ceased to run Londonwards, and ordinary traffic on the highway was held up at barriers and turned back. Only military cars used the roads and returned to add their reports to those brought in by air scouts. But as a rule, the information they furnished was for official enlightenment only, and it was not till the refugees arrived in numbers that the full meaning of displacement was made clear to the ordinary man. It was after the second red night that the refugees appeared in their thousands. A horde of human rats driven out of their holes by terror, by fire, and by gas. Whatever their status and possessions in the life of peace, they came with few exceptions on foot as roads like railways were a target for the airmen. The highway was avoided for the bypath or the open field, and the flight from every panic-stricken center could be traced by long wastes of trampled crops. There were those who, terrified beyond bearing by the crash of masonry and long trembling underground, saw safety only in the roofless open, refused to enter houses, and persisted in huddling in fields unafraid as yet of the so-called poison fire, which had licked up the crops in Holderness and the corn-growing district round Pontrefact. Leeds, for a day or two, was hardly touched. But with the outpouring of fugitives from Dewsbury, Wakefield, Halifax, and Bradford, 
Leeds also began to vomit her terrified multitudes. A wave of vagrant destitution rushed suddenly and blindly northward, anywhere away from the ruin of explosive, the flames and death by suffocation, while authorities strove vainly to control and direct the torrent of overpowering misery. It was in the early morning that the torrent reached York and rolled through it, overwhelming the charity, private and public, that at first made efforts to cope with the rush of misery. Theodore's room for a time was given up to a man with bandaged eyes and puffed face whom his wife had led blindfold from Castleford. The man himself sat dumb and suffering, breathing heavily through blistered lips. The woman raged vulgarly against the government, which had neglected to supply them with gas masks, to have the place properly defended, to warn people. The bloody fools ought to have known what was coming, and if her man was blinded for the rest of his life, it was all the fault of this ere government that, that never troubled its blasted head as long as it drew its money. That was in the beginning, before the flood of misery had swollen so high that even the kindliest shrank from its squalid menace. And Theodore, because it was the first he heard, remembered her story when he had forgotten others more piteous. Before midday, there was only one problem for local authority, civil and military, the disposal of displaced population. That is to say, the herding of vagrants that could not all be sheltered, that could not all be fed, that blackened fields, choked streets, drove onward and sank from exhaustion. The railway line to the north was still clear, and in obedience to wireless instructions from London, trains packed with refugees were sent off to the north with the aim of relieving the pressure on local resources. Disorganization of transport increased the difficulty of food supply, and even on the first day of panic and migration, the agricultural community were raising a cry of alarm. Blind terror and hunger between them wrought havoc. Fields were trampled and fugitives were plundering already, would plunder more recklessly tomorrow. All day, all night, displaced humanity came stumbling in panic from south and southwest, spreading news of the torment it had fled from, the dead it had left and the worse than dead, who still crouched in an inferno whence they could not summon courage to fly. The railways could not deal with the tithe of the number who clamored to be carried to the north into safety. By the first evening, the town was well-nigh eaten out, and householders, hardening their hearts against misery, were bolting themselves in for fear of misery grown desperate. While out in the country, farmers stabled their livestock and kept ceaseless watch against the hungry. All day, the approaches to the station were besieged by those who hoped for a train, and on the second night of the invasion, Theodore, sent by his chief with a message to the military transport officer, fought his way through a solid crowd on the platform, a crowd excluded from a train that was packed and struggling with humanity, a crowd that was squalid, unreasoning, and blindly selfish, intent only on flight and safety, and some of it brutally intent. There were scuffles with porters and soldiers who refused to open locked doors, angry hootings and wild swayings backward and forward as the train moved out of the station. Theodore's efforts to make his way to the station master's office were held to be indicative of a desire to travel by the next train, and he was buffeted aside without mercy. 
There was something in the brute mass of terror that sickened him, a suggestion already of the bestial, the instinctive, the unhuman. The transport officer looked up at him with tired, angry eyes and demanded what the hell he wanted, whereat Theodore handed him a typewritten note from the punctilious chief and explained that they had tried to get through on the telephone either to him or the station master, but... I should rather think not, said the transport officer rudely. We're both of us got more important things to worry about than little distribution people. The telephone clerk did bring me some idiotic message or other, but I told him I didn't want to hear it. He glanced at the typewritten note, then glared at it, and went off into a cackle of laughter, which finally tailed into blasphemy coupled with obscene abuse. Seen this? he asked, when he had sworn himself out. Well, at any rate, you know what it's about. The has sent for the particulars of tomorrow's refugee train service, wants to know the number and capacity of trains to be dispatched to Newcastle on time, wants to enter it in duplicate, I suppose, and make lots and lots and lots of carbon copies. God in heaven! And again, he sputtered into blasphemy. Well, I needn't bother to write down the answer. Even if you've no more sense than he has, you'll be able to remember it all right. It's nil to both questions, nil trains to Newcastle, nil capacity, so that's that. What's more, if it's any satisfaction to your darn fool boss to know it, we haven't been sending any trains to Newcastle all day. But I thought, began Theodore, wondering if the man were drunk. He was, more than slightly, having fought for two days with panic-stricken devils and helped himself through with much whiskey. But drunk or not, he was sure of his facts and wrapped them out with authority. Not to Newcastle. The first two or three got as far as Darlington this morning. There they were pulled up. Then it was North Allerton. Now we send them off to Thirsk and leave the people there to deal with them. You bet they'll send them further if they can. You don't suppose they want to be eaten out any more than we do. But for all I know, they're getting them in from the other side. The other side? Theodore repeated, what do you mean? Whereat the transport officer, grown suddenly uncommunicative, leaned back in his chair and whistled. That's all I can tell you, he vouchsafed at length. Trains haven't run beyond Darlington since yesterday. I conclude HQ knows the reason, but they haven't imparted it to me. I've only had my orders. It isn't our business if the trains get stopped so long as we send them off and we're sending them and asking no questions. Do you mean, Theodore stammered, that this is going on up north? What do you think, said the transport officer? It's the usual trick, isn't it? Start them running from two sides at once. Don't let them settle. Send them backwards and forwards. Keep them going. We've played it often enough on them. Now we're getting a bit of our own back. However, I've no official information. You know just as much as I do. But, Theodore persisted, the people coming through from the north what do they say? They must know. There aren't any people coming through, said the other grimly. Military order since this morning. No passenger traffic from the north runs this side of Thirsk. We've got enough of our own, haven't we? All I say is, God help Thirsk, and especially God help the station master. He straightened himself suddenly and grabbed at the papers on his table. Now you've got what the damn fool sent you for and I'm trying to make out my report. As Theodore fought his way out of the station and the crowd that seethed round it, 
He had an intolerable sense of being imprisoned between two fires. If he could see far enough to the north, to Durham and the Tyneside, there would be another hot, throbbing horizon and another stream of human destitution pouring lamentably into the night. And between the two fires, the two streams were meeting, turning back upon themselves, intermingling in blind and agonized obedience to the order, keep them going. What happened when a train was halted by signal and the thronged misery inside it learned that here, without forethought or provision made, its flight must come to an end. At Thirsk, North Allerton, by the wayside, anywhere, in darkness, a thin sweep of rain was driving down the street, and he fancied wretched voices calling through darkness, through rain, asking what, in God's name, was to become of them, and where, in God's name, they were to go. And the overworked officials, who could give no answer, seeking only to be rid of the massed and dreadful helplessness that cumbered the ground on which it trod. Displacement of population, the daily stilted phrase, had become to him a raw and livid fact, and he stood amazed at the limits of his own imagination. Day after day he had read the phrase, been familiar with it, yet so far the horror had been words to him. Now the daily stilted phrase was translated, comprehensible. Don't let him settle. Keep him going. Back at the office, he discovered that his errand to the station had been superfluous. His chief, the man of precedent, order, and many carbon copies, was staring, haggard, and bewildered at a typewritten document signed by the military commandant and obtaining, incidentally, his first glimpse into a world till now unthinkable, where precedent was not, where reference was useless, and order had ceased to exist. End of chapter 5. Recording by Jennifer Mazzocchi.